0: Do you want to be a leader who gets noticed, gets things done, and gets real results? Then you need influence and authority. Join host Jennifer McClure to learn how to build authority, expand your influence, and increase your impact. This is the Impact Makers Podcast with Jennifer McClure.
1: Hey there, Impact Makers. Thank you for joining me for this week's episode of the Impact Makers Podcast, where my goal is to help you build a career that you love and a life that matters. I'm excited to share with you today, a conversation with my friend, Tim Sackett. Tim is a man of many talents, roles, and words. I first met Tim way back in 2009 when we were both writing for the popular blog, Fistful of Talent. And even though the collective voice of FOT had always been a bit contrarian and sometimes controversial, when Tim jumped in the pool, he brought that voice to a whole new level. Most of his posts were funny and practical, and he never shied away from writing about topics that no one else wanted to touch, including me. In other words, Tim often says what others only think. And while that can sometimes make him a target for trolls or negative feedback, he always seems to handle that backlash and, of course, any praise with humility and a willingness to learn from others. He's definitely earned his stripes as a human resources leader and recruiting practitioner and is currently the president-elect of the board for the Association of Talent Acquisition Professionals, which is a global member-driven organization with the sole mission of advancing the talent acquisition profession. But in his day job, he's the president of HRU Technical Resources, an established and growing staffing firm located in Lansing, Michigan. But as you'll hear in our conversation today, getting into that spot at HRU and ultimately unseating his mother, who founded the company, was a sometimes painful but ultimately helpful growth and learning experience for both of them. He's a frequent writer and speaker and agitator and is definitely someone I would call an influencer in the world of work. You'll find him writing every business day on his personal blog, The Tim Sackett Project, as well as continually contributing to Fistful of Talent and many leading industry publications. Seriously, I don't think Tim has ever missed a day of posting on his blog after almost 10 years, and that is an amazing achievement. After two years of writing online and being encouraged to write a book, he found some more hours in his busy day to do just that. His book, The Talent Fix, A Leader's Guide to Recruiting Great Talent, was published in April 2018. And not only is it a great book, but I get a mention in it on page 154 to be exact. So that definitely makes it worth the cost. I'll link to the book as well as all places to find all things Tim Sackett in the show notes at JenniferMcClure.net slash 15. But Tim is more than just a business owner and writer. He's also an in-demand speaker at conferences and events around the world where you can find him talking about topics like the future of HR and technology, the DNA of your best employees and how you can get more of them, and probably my favorite, trust me, I'm lying. If that one intrigues you, you can go to his website to find out more about that topic and discover the actual truth. I really appreciate Tim for consistently sharing what he's learned and learning along the way in order to help human resources and recruiting leaders to become relevant and to make an impact in their organizations. But I appreciate him even more for being a loving husband, father, and son. Trust me, you don't have to be a recruiter or work in talent acquisition to find some great takeaways from our conversation today. Tim's learned a lot of lessons in life from doing things wrong, recognizing his faults, and being a willing to admit failure adapt and improve. Oh, and he's always the world's only workplace hugging expert. You've got to continue listening to learn more about how he claimed that title and much more. Well, good morning, Tim Sackett. How are you doing today? I'm doing awesome. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for coming on the Impact Makers podcast. It's a shame that people can't see the videos here. You have such a wonderful smile that you're always bringing to the world. You're always so happy, Tim. Why is that?
0: you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm not a huge believer. Like people always say, Oh, you should do what you love. And you know, you have to do what you love and you have to do what you're passionate about. And I think that's bullshit for the most part. <laughs> I mean, like, I'm the, like the perfect example of like, I'm just, I have great work ethic probably from my parents or whatever. Um, I love to make money. Uh, I'm doing well in my career. And then I find stuff then that will make me happy. So if my job's not making me happy, then I'll go do other stuff that makes me happy. But at the same time, like I have to work. Like I got three kids and two in college and like a house payment. Like, like that's just life. Right. Um, and so life's pretty good. So I got a smile on my face.
1: Well, that's a good way of looking at things. Well, I've told people a little bit about you and how we've connected in the intro, but I always like to start with I know. That, tell- one cra-
0: that one crazy night in Vegas. No, know?
1: we're not going, going
0: there. <laughs> I thought that was no. You tell them that story. No,
1: nope. that was on the do not talk about list. So. Um. Sorry. <laughs> Um, tell me who Tim Sackett is. Tell everybody who Tim Sackett is. Uh, what's your story? How'd you get here today?
0: Yeah, so I was raised a poor black child. Um, that's a movie quote from the jerk for people that just got offended and <laughs> turned off the podcast. Um now I was raised by a single mother for the most part. Um, and she actually started a town acquisition company, a recruiting company that I run. Um, so she hired me right out of college, but I tell people that I was born into recruiting and talent acquisition because when I was nine years old and I was living, my sister and I were living with my mom. And so here's a single woman trying to start a business, taking care of two kids. And so you can imagine, and you've recruited, I've recruited Jen, like that's just a lot of night work. You got to get a all the candidates when they could. Back in the day, it was a lot of night work where you just had, you brought resumes home and you called that night and you talked to people when they weren't at work because that was just kind of how we did. Now, people will sit at their desk and say, oh yeah, I'll talk to you right now. And like, it's just like the whole ethics of all this is just crazy. But I remember sitting there on her bed listening to her make phone calls and then she would actually be sending like either thanks, no thanks letters or or like next step letters because that was all, it was all kind of mailing at that point. And so she would have me stuff envelopes and pay me five cents per envelope stuffed. And then she would address them. And then we would be watching TV with the sound off because she was making phone calls. And like, that was how I was kind of grew up like that. And, and so people go like, Oh, you were born into recruiting. I'm like, no, like, I was nine, 10 years old, 11 years old. And I would listen to my mother make recruiting calls. And so when I got out of college and she's like, Hey, do you want to come? Like the business is going well, I need help. Do you want to come in and work as a recruiter and kind of learn the job? I was like, yeah, sure. And so did that for about eight years. Um, and it was really doing well. I mean, in, in the recruiting world, you can just make tons and tons of money. So that was like awesome um and so, but you, but you also get full of yourself. Like you think you're better than everything because you're like making big money. Like you're mm-hmm. like, ah, we'll buy new furniture next with the next commission check next month, honey. I mean, don't worry, I'll buy you a new car next month with the next commission check. And you start to like it's such a warped sense of reality. And so I started pushing my mom like a lot. Like it's time. Like you're getting old. It's time for you to get out. Like you know, come on. Like go, old lady. Like I, I, I like let the kid run it now. Like I know everything. I'm making a lot of money. You were in your 20s at this time? I was, yeah, late 20s. Um, and she was like, no, you're fired. Get out of here. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah. Um, she, did, we, she did a little <laughs> nicer than that because obviously at that point, you know, I, she had grandchildren and all of that. And, um, and so she made it a soft, a soft landing to the point where I could start my corporate career in HR and talent acquisition did that for about a decade. Um, and then about nine years ago, she had a heart attack. And I said, see, you're old.
1: Oh, you did not.
0: (laughs) I did after I knew she was okay. No, Um, no, she, she, at that point, I think it was kind of a wake up call and she was just like, I can't take it. Can't take the stress of running a business day to day. And, and how do, you know, she's like, so do you, I'm going to sell it or do you want to come back and give it a shot? And, and really like, it was the best thing she ever did for me was to fire me because I couldn't have run her business. I had no idea how to run a business. Um, And then after working a decade in the corporate world, I really, I think, felt like learned how to be a leader, learned how to lead people, which is the kind of the bigger aspect of running a business. And um, so it, it was a blessing in disguise. I hated her when she did it. Oh my God, I was so upset for years. Um, really held a grudge. Um, but then little by little, it was, it was like, oh my gosh, like, yeah, she was right. Oh, hate that. hate to say my mom was right. Um, and so I've been running the company the last nine years and um, and she's retired and um, love what I do, but it was funny because, like, I, you you know that I, I so I run a staffing company out of Michigan, and we do stuff all over. But also, I do all this writing and speaking and all this other stuff, and that's kind of how we ran into each other. And um, and, I, and that started when I was on the corporate side uh, of HR because it, I needed something um, that that I was passionate about. We talked about like I, I the job I got I, I made a job change and it wasn't a good job change and I was stifled. And so I found something else I could be passionate about. And it was, you know, the writing side of blogging and everything else I do. So,
1: well, so much stuff in there that I want to <laughs> hit on there. We- <laughs> yes, let's use that. Tim, to- please lay down on the couch. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to start and you know, maybe we'll get your mom on the podcast someday soon. Do you know why, you know, as a single mom, she decided to start her own recruiting firm? Um, yeah, you know, yeah. what, what was it about your mom? I, you know, I know from everything you've said about her, you, you have made up and, and you admire her very much. Um,
0: oh, the but, toughest bitch in the world. <laughs> I would never want to negotiate against her. She's so tough. What, what do you think it was
1: that, I mean, she, she had recruiting experience. Was it just in the blood all along?
0: She, was running, a, she was running a temp staffing office for like a national firm. And she actually um she still lived kind of local to where she went to high school um and was running this temp staffing firm. And she went to a holiday party, a girlfriend had invited her. Um and so she shows up like um at a you know, like one of the standard Christmas kind of party things and you know, drinks, stinks and wheeze, and, and so she um she gets she gets introduced to the her girlfriend from high school. She hadn't seen her in a few years, and she's like, Oh, I want to introduce you to my husband. He's the director of engineering at General Motors O'smobile. In Lansing, Michigan, and so they get to talking. And again, she's an entrepreneur by nature, like just like born with this passion to figure out. Like you could drop her in the middle of Baghdad, and she would find out a, a way to make money. Like that's just who she is. Mm-hmm. And so she starts talking with this guy. He's like he's telling about his pain points of we just can't find engineers, and oh my gosh, like we're struggling. And it just happened to be one of those kind of times in you know that that part of the world or that time you know time in time, and. She goes, I can do that. I can find you engineers. And he's like, come meet with me on Monday. She went and met with him on Monday. She quit her job on Tuesday and started her own company good
1: for her. Well, tell me more than, you know, let's get back to you when she fired you. So you were like trying to push her out way too soon. And before you were oh my ready, God. I was what such was, an immature
0: th- asshole. Oh, what,
1: what was that conversation? Like, what, what did she say? You said she did it easier than than kind of what you joked about, but what was that conversation? Like when your mom kind of said, you need to
0: go find your bliss elsewhere. Oh God, you're bringing up like years of therapy uh, <laughs> to get over this. No. Um, I you know I, I was, again, I think because of the immaturity and the amount of money I was making, I was treating the people around me really poorly. Um, You know, and and again, I was at that point kind of a manager, um, you know, and so I had a team reporting to me and I was just hard um, and and really pushing them and, you know, almost like in a boiler room kind of mentality. I mean, my language, my personality, like everything was just um, warped. And I think she was like, you know what, like potentially if I allow this to continue, I'm going to lose some really good people. And so I can either take care of him or I have to be willing to put up with that and, and lose a lot of people. And and she just kind of came and said like, Hey, you know, we can't have this. And it's not a warning because she had probably already warned me a hundred times. And I was just like, yeah, whatever. You know, um, I'm making a lot of money. Just, you know, you're never going to fire me because of how great I am. And and so she just did it. And, and, she, you know, she, again, she worked through lawyers and, and, you know, gave me a package that, you know, paid me and made sure my family had benefits and stuff like that for a while. And, and, and again, it wasn't like I wasn't marketable, you know, I had a master's in HR and, and again, I, I, and I still had the ability to turn on charm and have a good personality. I just wasn't within my own team. Um, and, uh, and so found a, found a, again, a, a really good job. Um, you know, working on the corporate side of HR and started that side of my career and really fell in love with it. Like I just didn't like it. And part of it is because recruiting in a staffing environment, it's sales. I was in a sales role and that's what it was. And then when I got to the, the HR side of what that all was, it was a completely different thing for me, you know, mm-hmm. from, so. So what was it that you
1: you really started to enjoy about kind of the corporate HR role?
0: Um. I really, I think it was helping people um, where I truly felt like I was helping people. I mean, on the staffing side, like my kids would always ask me like, what does dad do? And I'd be like, oh, I help people find jobs. But it's not necessarily <laughs> as aspirational as that. Cause it's one thing if you're like going, oh, this person's out of work and they're struggling and oh my gosh, you know, I found him a job. And that's, that's like, the, that's like the staffing Holy Grail, wonderful story. Like I've had people pull over on the side of the road And I've offered them a job, and they're crying because, again, they they're in a position in their life where they were struggling so bad, and you finally found them something. But you and I, Jen, know like that happens so infrequently. It's either it's usually what happens is it's some person who's already great at their job, making great money, and then I find them another job where they're making even more great money. Um, And they're not. I mean, they might be thankful, but they're not like they're like whatever. This is your job. You're getting paid a lot of money to do it. (laughs) You know, (laughs) we all we all know the interaction. So. I, when I went to HR and somebody needed help, um, and it could be an employee relations issue, somebody, you know, just whatever it might be, you truly had employees that you could help and that they, they, that you learned that you became this family and you cared about them and you wanted to make sure that, they, you know, they were doing the right thing. Um, and so it was just a a different kind i think of reward that you that i got in the career at the same time you had to deal with all the ugly stuff that happens in organizations with people as well so i mean the challenges were new i think you know maybe some of that is it's just it's all brand new challenges and some really rewarding things that take place
1: well, that's cool. It's you know, it's surprising to me to hear you kind of describe the different personalities you brought to the workplace. There, <laughs> I mean, did you really learn that quickly once you went into the corporate world? That oh, I got to change who I am and how I kind of interact with the world, or was that more of a no? A longer that was process?
0: An, yeah, that was an adjustment. The my the very first chro that I worked for, and I'm still really good friends with today because. I think he could see like, there's this, there's like this hidden gem (laughs) underneath this asshole. (laughs) And, um, he, so my first, um, feedback that I got my annual performance feedback from him, it, the exact line is, and I think, I don't know if I put it, um, in my book or I know I've said it a number of times to people when I speak to is, um, Tim is unfiltered and loose in the corners. (laughs) And, and he was a NASCAR fan. So the loose in the corners was, you know, you want to run fast. And if you're loose, you're a little out of control. And then the unfiltered thing is, is like, you literally say whatever is on your mind in any situation. And when you're sitting in a room of executives, you just can't go and say, Hey, the reason you can't hire is because you, you suck at what you do. Like like you just can't say that to somebody. And he's like, but you do. And he goes, and it probably is true, but you just don't do that politically. Right. So there was a lot of that political savviness that I had to pick up. And that was probably one of the bigger kind of development opportunities and learnings I did in the corporate side of the world. And again, I still was never great at it, but at least I think had the ability to know kind of when to turn it on mm-hmm. and when I, when I didn't have to. So.
1: so was there somebody, it sounds like that person or that boss, but were there people that kind of like reached into your life and mentored you or that you reached out to and got some training and good advice from during that time?
0: Yeah, I mean, um, I I think I have to give most credit to my wife, um, who's the exact opposite of me. So I I don't think I would be in the position I am in the world without having a great partner in life with her. Um, Kind of, you know, that one person that I, you know, you just totally trust that she always wants the best for me. Um, and even though it's sometimes hard to take, I think she's always the only person too willing to kind of tell me exactly, um, how I'm coming across or something like that. So I'll give her credit first and foremost, um, on the professional side, I've had a lot of great kind of CHRO kind of mentors, um, you know, throughout, you know, my career that have really also kind of been able to And part of that is I I think I have good self insight. I know if I do something like that, I can I know right, and and I'll reach out and say, look, I need help. Can you help me? Um, When I went to Applebee's, they had a great culture, Um, you know. And people always think of like Applebee's. It's like these two thousand restaurants, and all the food is crap and whatever. Um, It's just kind of this mass. It's kind of like McDonald's for casual dining. But the reality was when I was there is like they just, they overhired on the HR side and they they were all about leadership because what they f- figured out was really anybody can serve beers uh, or fries, burgers, you know, in beer. It's, it's, you better have great customer service. So you better have great leadership. And so they really, really focused on that. So I had uh, just a number of great leaders there um, that were willing to kind of put your arm around you and say, Hey, we, we're going to help you, right? We're going to give you you more feedback than you've ever gotten in your life. Um, because we truly believe, and, and part of that was, is their selection process was insane. Like I went through a nine, like hour straight interview process to the point where at, like at night, like at nine o'clock at night, like I couldn't, I, I actually lost my voice. Um, cause I had talked for nine straight hours and they like grilled me on every single thing. But their thing was, is once we make a hire that like, we're all in, we don't hire you to fire you. We hire you to turn you into the person that we think we, we hired. Right.
1: So did you get some, after you started working there to kind of you know, take the, the raw talent that they've hired and then develop that into their culture and into leadership, how did they kind of help you grow while you were there?
0: It, it was a constant critical feedback loop. And they, and they actually like warned you of this. Like they actually try to talk you out of not coming to work because they said, you're going to receive more feedback, critical feedback from us than you in the first year than you've received your entire career. And they literally were like, you can't handle it. You're not going to handle this. Like people don't handle this well. Like people, everybody says they want feedback. People don't really want feedback. What they want you to say is, oh my gosh, you're a rock star. We love you. Like you're better than everybody else. That's the feedback they want. When people tell you when they want critical feedback, they're lying to you. They don't. No one wants to know that they suck and what they suck at. that like, That's like that's so hard to take. And most people can't handle it. And they just break down and they cry and then they quit because they think you, you're you awful. Even though they go, wait a minute, you just asked me for that feedback. And then, well, no, I want you to tell me I'm awesome. Um, they would actually tell you like, hey, you're not very awesome. And here's why. But they also set it up in the right way that you knew it was coming and you expected it. And they made sure that you kind of expected it. But at the same time, you also felt like 100% they were there to help you fix that and actually make sure they were going to stay on top of you so you would fix it so that mm-hmm. you wouldn't keep coming up and doing these stupid, they call them career derailers, you know, and we, and I and I was trained in the same way. So I would have to go and have these conversations constantly with, you know, peers and, and people that, you know, in my region that, and I had, you know, like 70 plus restaurants that I was responsible for. So you had to constantly go have, have these questions and say, well, if you have a career derailer, here's what it is. And either you're going to fix this, and we're going to get rid of it, or we're going to control it, or you're not going to work here anymore. Like it just this won't happen. And so let's let's figure this out. And so again, it wasn't like it was an annual kind of process. I mean, it was weekly, monthly, sometimes daily, where you were constantly having these conversations and just powerful, powerful stuff.
1: Is that something that you've kind of taken along in the rest of your career and currently in your business? Do you do you give that kind of critical feedback?
0: I do, and, and again, I think I've. Um, and And I found out, though, that that one statement that I told you is that, you know, for the most part, most people are not wired to take critical feedback. So it's a real balance of I want to tell you, you know, what you're doing well and continue to give you all that appreciative feedback and how much I care for you. Um, and, and then, you know, really try to get them in a the position where they're able to take the critical feedback where this isn't like this crushing blow that I'm destroying you, because that is, is that's how people feel. And like, I, I you know, when we talk about like performance management and how to get leaders better. It's the one thing I think leaders fail at is because they don't really understand understand that. They, they think people want feedback. They don't want feedback. <laughs> they don't.
1: <laughs> <laughs> they don't, but they need it, right? In order to get better. so
0: They need it, but you really have to work to build up that bank account of kind of emotional deposits to be able to get people to trust you enough that they know the reason you're giving this feedback is that you care enough about them that you're trying to help their career. And, mm-hmm. and that's really, it, it takes a lot of time to get there.
1: So it was while you were in the corporate world that you started writing, blogging online, or I guess you started reading blogs first. Kind of tell me, you know, what what prompted that to start reading other content on the internet and maybe about what time that was and, and then what prompted you to start writing?
0: Yeah, well, um, like I said, I was stuck in a bad job um, just from a cultural standpoint, cultural fit standpoint. The job itself wasn't bad. The team was awesome, but just a wrong culture fit. I went from Applebee's, which was like an average age of 26 super fast, super innovative, like just constantly moving and trying to, you know, kind of build leaders to like a, a, a healthcare system where the average age was 46 and doctors were God.
1: <laughs> and I, I
0: didn't deal with that real well. You know? <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think anyone's God. Just because you're a doctor doesn't mean you're better than somebody else. But in the healthcare system, they truly felt that way. And we were, you know, you were kind of said, Hey, this is how you have to manage this kind of behavior. Um, so I don't know why it happened, but one day I was on the internet looking for something. I'm sure it was for some project I was working on um, in HR and I found Chris Dunn's blog, the HR capitalist. And I said, Oh my gosh, I was reading his stuff and I'm like, Holy crap, this guy's writing stuff on the internet. Like exactly like I'm thinking in my head, but because I was in this stifling kind of political conservative environment, I could never say it out loud. I'm like, wow. And so I just sent him a quick email message and said, I don't know if anyone reads your stuff because it looks like a 10 year old kid put this website together. But, um, (laughs) but you write, like, I think like it's so awesome and just keep it up. Good job. I'm out. I don't even know if you'll get this message because who knows if anyone reads this blog. Um, and I didn't even know what blogs were like, it was just, I think I didn't even call it a blog. It's like your website. He emailed me back. I, he says it was like, five, 10 minutes, an hour later. It was like 13 seconds later, I get an email response (laughs) with his phone number saying, call me. And then I'm at that point, I'm like, wow, that's creepy. No one does read this guy's blog. And now I have no idea what I'm going to get into. But I'm like, like, what the hell, I'm bored. Um, So I called him and we talked for like an hour and a half. Um, And it was literally like a brother from another mother. Like We just thought the exact same way. And so at some point during that conversation, he's like, Oh, have you ever thought about writing it? Like, God, no, I'm like, I'm awful. Like I have no idea if I can write. So he asked me to write a couple things and um, I sent it to him. And um, one of them was like some stupid thing on FMLA. I wanted to show him how smart I was, you know, about HR. And there was like some cha- new change at FMLA or something. And then the other one was I had just left Applebee's to go to this new job in healthcare. And so I had like this, piles and piles of like logo wear like sweatshirts and t-shirts and jackets and bags like every applebee's did like logo wear for everything and my wife was like what the hell do you want me to do with all this like a 30-year closet's applebee's crap what should i do and i'm like "Ah, i just sent it to goodwill but the, the idea was where does this stuff go because never am i walking through town seeing somebody wear my applebee's people stacks jacket from 2001 kind of like you know champion thing and so the, the post I wrote was, I, you know, it was like the idea of me going on vacation on safari in Africa. And all of a sudden someone's walking across like the Serengeti at me with my Applebee's jacket on going, wait a minute, <laughs> that's my jacket. And he goes, that's brilliant. Always write like that. Never ever send me another FMLA piece. I'll, I'll not talk to you again. Um, and so I, for like, gosh, probably three years, I had the Friday slot at FOT, which was, he said, Hey, just go make us laugh. Right. Like make fun of what we do, have fun with it. What I did know at the time, cause I was such a naive blog person. And you know, our friend Lori Ruderman told me was that was the worst spot to have. Nobody wants Friday. Cause Friday is where posts go to die because during the weekend, no one reads it. And then Monday there's new content in the machine and everyone's reading that. And I'm like, Chris, you son of a bitch. For three years, you kept me on a bad position. Like, you should have had me on Mondays, damn it. Um, Well, actually,
1: I remember it differently because I was writing for Fistful of Talent at the time. And it was like you had 17 posts a week. And the rest of us writers were going, wait a minute. Wait a minute. This guy's taking all of
0: the shine. No, and that Chris did push me to start my own blog because he's like, hey, you have way too much content. Um, because I just had this, um, endless kind of flow, like faucet turned on. And like, I just had stuff that and it ended up being therapy. I don't know if you've ever been through therapy for seeing a therapist. Are you, Jen, are you seeing a therapist right now? <laughs> this uh, is not about me, Tim. <laughs> oh, sorry. Um, I have, I've seen a therapist. It's really helpful. Um, but, um, not for a long, long time. And so when I started blogging, like I said, I was in this kind of, what I felt was like this really bad fit for me culturally. And so I used it as therapy. And, and again, like I never, I, did, I, was never, I wasn't never was even worried about somebody in my own company or reading what I was writing. Even I wasn't writing about them specifically um, <laughs> um, because I just figured like they were so backwards, like no one would even find Fistful of Talent blog. <laughs> and, and so I just kind of wrote with like completely unfiltered abandonment. I go back and read some of that stuff that I wrote 10 years ago. I'm like, wow. Like if I wrote that stuff now, I would be destroyed. <laughs> like, <laughs> Just people would be offended at so many levels. I have no idea. Um, well, but-
1: well, we'll talk a little bit about your voice and kind of uh, how you approach writing and and what makes you different and great. But so at the time you were employed in the corporate world, you were writing this unfiltered stuff and you didn't tell them or they didn't know or did that cause no. you any problems? Nope. They never, never, they never read it.
0: <laughs> never read it, never found out. That's like, that was just one of the dirty little secrets of like blogging back then was the audience was small enough that... There wasn't a huge worry about that. And, you know, you just kind of did. And the, But the one thing about having a small audience too was for the most people the re- people that were reading you were fans. So that was kind of cool.
1: So what did that do for you while you were still kind of employed in the corporate world? Did it did it create any opportunities for you to be writing at Fistful of Talent and then eventually creating your own blog at timsackett.com?
0: Um, yeah, I don't think it really necessarily from a professional standpoint helped me. Um, I guess it depends on what, I consider professional right because for me it was my HR career my you know kind of talent acquisition career um the crazy part was is so like I said like I went back to work for my mother and run her company when I when she first found out about it like she's um baby boomer and she shut that stuff down like immediately she was like oh no 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 you you're not going to do this and I just happened to have already had a speaking gig signed and I think it was like for the Michigan State Sherm conference or something like that and so I said, okay, well, all right, I'll stop, right? It's, I get to make a lot of money working for you than I do blogging. So, like, that's not a big deal. Like, I just, that's, that's, I'm a big boy and I want to make money. So, this is how it goes. And I said, well, I already have the speaking thing signed. I can't, like, bail on them. It's next week. How about you come and watch? And so she was just like, I cannot believe that you're going to sit in front of these people and tell them how to do what we do. You're going to give our secret sauce away and we will go out of business. <laughs> and, And so thankfully, um, I had a full room. I mean, like literally standing room, people sitting on the floor, she's in the back and she, I, she, I I go through my entire thing. And I think the presentation was something like literally like how to transition your, your in-house recruiting to like an in-house agency. Like, how do you like evolve corporate recruitment?
1: You were giving away the secret sauce. (laughs) I was giving the secret
0: sauce. And and so we went through the whole thing and then had Q&A and like literally there was a line of like 20 people giving me cards afterwards. Like, oh my gosh, we need to talk, we need to talk, we need to talk. Um, and she came up and she's like, all right, get it. She's like, I would have like spent literally a, a three months calling all of those people trying to get a meeting and they're asking you to come meet with them. And she's like, I get it. And i said like, that's the dirty secret, mom. Like I can go and say exactly how you should do this but one out of 10 might do it. The other nine are just going to call me and ask me to do it for them. Like, that's how that works, you know? Mm-hmm. And so she's never had an issue. Um, and again, she's not a big online person. So thankfully, she doesn't read all my stuff. Otherwise, she might have an issue. <laughs> um, but no, it's, it's worked out really well from a business development standpoint for my career. Um, you know, and then, it, you know, the other side of it is, is it just gives me a lot of uh, other just passion to be able to go out and and write and and talk and speak with people and and really just kind of build the community. I love giving back to the community. I was I was at Sherman Talent this last week and and spoke there and did well. And I spent all of yesterday replying to emails of people with a million questions. <laughs> mm-hmm. what, you, what should I use? And how would you set up recruitment metrics? And and again, I could go and say, oh well, let's talk and we can you know come give me a consulting agreement and come pay me for that, but. I'm like ah oh, here this here's what here's what I would do.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I think that you know you're you're somewhat unique in that way. Not everybody blogs or speaks or you know writes a book to develop business, but you are. Are you the president or are you the CEO of HRU Technical
0: Services? President. She's still the CEO. <laughs> Mom's um, still hanging on to that. Telling me, <laughs> telling me she's going to have a retirement party, but it doesn't doesn't happen.
1: So you're. I mean, you you do probably get business because of being out there, as you mentioned, and people wanting you to do what you're telling them they can do. But I see you, you really do want to give back and help other people. And and you do spend time with people and give away your advice and time for free. Now, granted that people, that doesn't mean send him an email and ask him to to tell you all the secrets, um, but you're very giving. Uh, do you see that that, is that just who you are with your kind of your advice and your counsel or, or is that the way it works for you?
0: Yeah, do you ever, did you ever listen to Gary Vanderchuk's first TEDx talk that he gave?
1: I'm sure like, I have.
0: But 2006, right? Gary mm-hmm. V, obviously this giant brand, and he talks about that like it's a you just have to give back to the community, and then things will tend to work out pretty well. You mm-hmm. know, it doesn't happen for everybody like that, but it did for him. And I think I I I look back at it now and go, wow, like I didn't I didn't purposely set out to do it. It was probably just my nature. To say somebody asked me a question and I go, oh my gosh, you know, okay, yeah, I'll help. And and I, even to the point where when I first started recruiting, I think I was like either year two or year three. So I was, you know, I mean, literally like 22 years old or something. Somebody wrote a sales book and they interviewed me for it. And it was an older guy that did it. And he was had a, like a friendship with my mom and my mom was like, you need to talk to my son. Because he does it in a unique way because I because I had GM as an account, right? So I had to go and meet with all these hiring managers that were literally, they were, they were like my dad's age or some of them were like my grandfather's age. And here's this young kid coming in that has no idea. And I literally would just sit down with them and ask them for help, ask them to teach me what, what they were doing. And these guys would put their arm around me and were like, yep, I'm going to mentor you, kid. And... It, you know, and it, so, but then when I started to get in that realm of, well, it's like, well, if someone asked me for help, that's what I learned was I'm going to help them. Just like when I ask somebody else for help, like we have a hard time turning that down or some people do. I have a really hard time with someone goes, oh my gosh, I need help. Um, can you help me with this? And I'm like, yeah, I, I will. <laughs> I'll give you something. I don't know if I'll give you everything. I don't know. <laughs>
1: So you've mentioned kind of like your your writing style. And I said, we'd talk a little bit about your voice. Um, if I were to describe the Tim Sackett voice, it's always um, practical. So real, real advice or real, real world stuff. You are not afraid to go there. So you will tackle things that others might consider controversial or taboo or things to stay away from. It's often funny because you're a funny guy. But you do kind of step into a lot of those places where you're writing about maybe what everyone else is thinking, but you're willing to put it on your blog with your name on it. So yeah. what what has happened? What's maybe been the most controversial thing that you've written or the thing that got people the most up in arms?
0: Wow. Um, a lot. There's been a lot of them. There's been um, a lot. Too many. <laughs> yeah. You know, some of the things I write that... Um, I don't even think of them as controversial and they'll, they'll blow up for some reason. That's somewhat silly. I will tell you that I wrote a blog post. Like, so I, you know, I have three sons, um, two are in college. Um, and my middle son really had high, high, high aspirations to go to like Duke or Northwestern. And, and, you know, as a parent, you tell your kid, you work your butt off, you get straight A's and you can go to Harvard. And then the reality hits you smack in the face and in the gut as a parent when your kid does get a four point and they do get a perfect ACT score and they do have all the extracurriculars. And then Northwestern comes back and says, well, either your kid didn't even get in because I guess they weren't great enough. And you're like, what? Like, I don't make (laughs) any sense. Or we'll let your kid in, but it's $68,000 a year. You know, and you're like, oh, wow, I don't have that kind of cash. So sorry, buddy. Um, way to work hard to get straight A's, <laughs> but you're going to state school, you know. Um, and so I wrote, um, so I, as a parent, I felt like a failure. Um, as my kid, I felt like they did every single thing they could do to put themselves in a position to be successful in that the system let them down. Now, being white and being upper middle class and being privileged and all that stuff, You can see how that could come across. I'm a whiny little, you know, SOB um, that my, you know, middle class white kid that, you know, has every advantage in the world didn't get into their one school of choice. But I wrote about that from a parent perspective and from a kid perspective. And not that I thought my kid should get in before some other kid. My perspective was, I really think every kid should be able to get in, right? Whether you're, you know, female, black, white, Asian, whatever, handicapped, non- If if you do all the work and you reach a certain level, I think every kid should get get in and get that opportunity to reach their dream. And yet, you know, it's part of, it's life. Like we don't, like that doesn't happen. So I wrote about that. Um, It is probably, gosh, he's been, he's a sophomore now. So it's been, it was when he was in high school. So it was three years ago. Holy crap. Every single week I get comments on that. Um, And it's usually from parents, white parents who are facing the same thing but I also get a lot of great comments from minority parents who are giving the other side um, mm-hmm. of the reality too. And like, there's literally hundreds and, and most of the comments are longer than the original post. <laughs> like there's so much passion and pain and frustration. Um, and it speaks to, you know, some of the actual political, you know, things that we face today. And again, I, I just set out as a dad that was, that was hurt that had a a, a child that was hurt and I wrote from the heart. And I think that the times that I write from the heart are probably the times that I get myself in trouble. Now, again, I don't think I got myself in trouble for writing that. Um, it it ends up being a great piece. Now, if someone, you know, if I went to go try to go get a job someplace and someone pulled that up, they'd look at that and go, Oh my gosh, we could never hire Tim because of this. Maybe like that. I I probably have the person you want to hire anyways, um, from that. But, yeah, I, I, you know, I think we have a lot of issues in the workplace around you know race and gender and some of these things. And, and just because I'm a middle-aged white guy doesn't mean I, I can't talk about them, even though I think the community tries to shut me down sometimes about talking about them. It's not going to stop me because it, it's what I'm thinking. And I think that's part of the conversation as well um and and do I have the best take on it hell no (laughs) it's just my Mm -hmm. take you know um and it might be wrong it might be right who knows um I but I don't want to be the spokesperson for every middle-aged white guy in the world either (laughs) Mm -hmm. because I I think differently I guess
1: you've also written uh, more than once about how pretty people are more likely (laughs) to get hired than ugly people in some of it's that, true. Well, some of that's anecdotal, and you also share some, some research. Do the, the pretty and the ugly people get as u- up in arms as uh, when you talk about race or, or gender in the workplace? <laughs>
0: no, right? Because we all think we're pretty. <laughs> so you're like, yeah,
1: yeah, it's easy for me.
0: <laughs> I always tell, I, I always, there's definite cultures that, that do this, and I always tease the people at Career Builder because I'm friends with them in their leadership team. If you go into Career Builder's corporate office, you're surrounded by pretty people. There's definitely something in their selection process where they go, Oh gosh, you look really nice. And Oh, by the way, you might still have skill sets. I don't know about that. <laughs> <I don't> know <laughs> that you don't meet ugly people that work at career builder. They're going to be and, so and happy that you mentioned this. <laughs> and there's other people, right. That are, that are you know other companies that have the same thing um, that, that you, that you run into as well. Um, and it's just, it's just a matter. It's just, it's just factual. Like, I mean, again, there's data now and there's studies that have shown that if you are considered attractive by whatever standards those are in terms of cement, symmetry and weight and everything else, um, you are more likely to to be in a higher level income and have a better job than someone who's not like, welcome to the real world. That sucks. Put a helmet on. I don't know what to tell you. Um, make yourself prettier. Like
1: make you yourself know, there. Okay. Good advice. We'll take that as a <laughs> tip. That's a tweetable. Um, <laughs> You also have written a post uh, about hugging, which got hundreds of thousands of views on LinkedIn and and other places, and became really popular. Tell me what I mean. You are the world's hugging expert. I think that's trademarked now. Um, but but tell me when you write stuff like that, what is that? What happens?
0: It was a throwaway post. Uh, it literally took me ten minutes to write it, and like today, over I think it's over a million views, like with all the different platforms and everything. And like I get like like connections from like Morning Zoo radio shows, going, "Hey, we got Tim at the workplace hugging expert on the line," <laughs> um, and just stupid stuff, right? It's like that fifteen minutes of fame you never wanted because now it seems creepy in the Me Too kind of you know times up movement. Um, but what so what happened was I was at a conference. Um, went out to dinner with somebody, a colleague, um, had a couple bottles of wine, um, a completely professional relationship. And again, I'm a hugger, went in to go give a hug goodbye and got a kiss right on the mouth. Oh, happily married. (laughs) Um, she went back to her hotel room. I didn't follow. I went outside um called my wife instantly and was like you cannot believe just what happened and i feel guilty for some reason i didn't do it but i gotta tell you and just like like told the whole story and thankfully she knew the person and thankfully she didn't like you know think i was trying to do something um outside of the marriage um but then i'm like oh my gosh i can't write about this because everybody would know um and but that so my the way my mind works is it turned into we should have rules around this but then again, I couldn't even connect the kissing thing. It had to be because then that that it was too it was too close, right? So I came up with rules of hugging. I don't, I don't I don't know why my brain did. I just did, and so I came up with like, hey, here's the workplace rules of hugging. Like when you hug somebody, like don't close your eyes, like in a workplace professional setting, or don't like reach in and go, oh, you smell so good. Like that's pretty, that kind of stuff's creepy. and um, and so, like, even when I speak now, like, I'll introduce myself as that, and I'll try to give people – I'm still surprised, even though it's, like, one of the most kind of red posts I've had, like, um, how many people still have no idea? Like, when I go to Sherman Talent, I'll say, who knows the workplace hugging rules, and there's 600 people in the room. There might be 10 that know the rules. And, it, and, it, and Chris, like – Chris done our friend like he just teases me that i actually do this to kind of open because like it kills every time like people love the workplace hugging rules probably because i always pick out somebody out of the audience that's like i'm not the tallest guy in the world i'm kind of like short in stature and i'll try to pick out someone who's opposite me so if i can find like a big dude like that six seven like 300 pounds and bring him on stage and they're hugging another guy on stage like the audience just loves that like that's just great comedy kind of mm-hmm. physical humor so
1: well, I love it. You are, in my mind, you will always be the workplace hugging expert, trademark. <laughs> um, so, so you did, we we kind of skipped right past. Mom invited you back into the workplace. You are now the president. She's the CEO, but um, living out of state and, and allowing you to kind of run this workplace. And I believe you either, is your son working for you now, either part-time or went during when he's out of school break?
0: Um, he did, yeah, I did a couple of internships with me, but, um, he's going into accounting now. So, um, he's actually got a real internship this summer. I say real, we made him, yeah, I mean, we threw him right on the floor and, and with the recruiters and he actually loved it. He loved working in the bullpen with the recruiting team and, um, just the, the energy and the calls and just getting involved with all that was, was pretty cool. So, yeah, I don't know if I'll ever, I'll have a third generation cause the other two boys I have zero interest in coming to work for me. Um, But it was a pretty cool thing. You know, one of the things when I came back, um, you know, with my mother, you know, because we're totally different in terms of how we lead and our personalities. Um, I mean, we're we're both very, we have very high expectations of people. So that's a very similar thing. But how we get there is totally different. I mean, she's an old school. I'm just going to threaten and push you and, you know, threaten your livelihood um, to get you to do things. And that's a baby boomer kind of mentality. They grew up in that world where that's just what you did. Um, and so we had to have that conversation. Like, I'm not coming back unless, like, you just let me do this my own way. And either I'll fail or I'll succeed. But, like, either you're going to let me do one way or the other. And I'm like, and she was going to sell the company anyway. So it's like, you might as well let me come in and just do it. And if I do it and it's great, then we'll both be happy. And if I don't, then just get rid of me and sell the company anyway. <laughs> so she did. So she did. She did really. I mean, it was very hard. Like, I and mean, she's a baby boomer. So it wasn't easy for her to do that. And we've had lots of conversations, but the first couple of years, um, it was difficult for her to kind of let go and step back. But little by little, she did, and now she kind of lets me run the show.
1: Well, I think you, you've proven yourself over time, or at least you're you're in the process of proving yourself to her. It's
0: never ending. <laughs>
1: it's never ending. So you've been writing online and blogging for a little over 10 years or about 10 years, and then somewhere along the way, you decided to put some of those thoughts into a book. Tell me what what that thought process was like.
0: Um, I think, I, I mean, I think a lot of people had come to me and said, hey, you should write a book, you know, on some of these things. But, you know, you know, Jen, you're a writer as well. And when you write a blog post, you know, and it's 500 words, 700 words, and people go, oh, my gosh, it's so good. I love that blog post. And oh, you should write a book. That's a huge jump from a 500 word blog post to a 65,000 word book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little bit. You know, one, one little idea, 500 words. 65,000 words is a different one. And so, like, I, that was my thought process is always like, okay, yeah, great. I can write 500 word blog posts, but to sit down and actually write a book, maybe that's too much. Um, but I think maybe I got to the point where I had enough things that kind of were interconnected in terms of an idea around kind of talent acquisition. And what, it, what I think the tipping point for me was I had been getting like so many kind of calls from kind of heads of HR, heads of talent that said, like, Tim, we're our recruiting is broken. And then, then, so then it was just like this nonstop loop of, okay, here's what I would do if I was you and here's how I would go through this. And here's what I would do. And I'm like, it would just be easier if I just wrote it in a book and they're like, just go buy the book. Like here's exactly <laughs> what I would do if I came in and ran your recruiting shop. Um, and then um, again, I think, you know, I sure published a book and they were very helpful in, in terms of walking me through the process. And, once I got through like the first kind of three or four steps in the process, I was like, Oh my gosh, I, I can write a book. I can do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was just a matter of time and effort of sitting down and actually doing the writing, but I knew what I wanted to write and how to write it. And then it kind of came together.
1: Yeah. Well, we'll definitely link to uh, where the book's available it's currently on the Sherm website, but it will be available on Amazon as well. And so we'll provide links to all that. But so it it kind of soft launched this week, the week we're doing this interview, right? At the Sherman Talent Conference. Um, It's called the Talent Fix. Yeah. What's, what's been the response so far? What's it like to be a published author?
0: How does it feel? (laughs) Um, No, it's very gratifying um, in in a way because it's, it's awesome to be able to come and like see your book and go, Oh my gosh, like I, I have a like this and Oh my gosh, the picture's on the back. And, The fun, the crazier part is, is you, it takes like a a year to write and publish and do all that, right? The editing and like everything else that goes along with it. And so I had an interview take place that said, Hey, we want to interview on the book and here's the questions. And they sent them to me and I was like, Oh my gosh, I don't even remember like writing that.
1: You got to go back and read your
0: book. (laughs) I I had to go back and read it and I'm on the plane reading it. And I'm reading and I set it down with, you know, and it was a back cover was showing and my picture's on the back cover. And the guy next to me is like looking at it, looking at me, looking at that. (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, I wrote the book. I'm reading my (laughs) own book. I do every day. and (laughs) And then I explain like, like how? Why I'm reading my own book because it seems a little weird, um, and kind you know, con, conceited. Um, and th- but then I always say to him, like it's really good. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but he I did. He didn't ask like, for wow. your copy. He didn't ask for the signed copy right there.
0: No, no, yeah, go buy your own, buddy.
1: So, what was uh, it like at the conference to actually have a book signing table? How'd that feel?
0: Um. It, yeah. It, it was. I actually made a joke because well, um, you know they introduce you and they said, "Oh, you know Tim's obviously has this new book he just launched this week and he'll be signing afterwards." And so I came up and I said, "So look, the whole signing thing is weird. Like it's going to be weird for both of us. Like that's an awkward moment." And I said, "So to make it more awkward, like I'm really going to go into detail in paragraphs about our time together and how special <laughs> it was for me." And so that when someone actually goes, you have the signed book. And they look at it, they're like, "What the hell is this?" <laughs> and so one lady did come up and go, "Hey, can you sign like for that special for all the time we spent together? How special it was?" And I'm like, "Oh yes, I will." <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then, um, and then I go, "I can't wait for you to go back and show the ladies in the office that." Like, I'd "Be like, wait a minute, tell us the story. It was in Vegas. Like, what happened um, from that?" So, um, but no, it's it's very humbling. Um, to have somebody come up and say, Oh my gosh, I saw you speak. You did great. I bought your book. I can't wait to read it. And can you sign it? And you're like, yeah, sure. Like
1: Yeah. So, think. so tell me, I mean, obviously I haven't written a book yet. Um, but you know, I would aspire to someday. And I just, you know, it's like a lot of things you kind of sit back and you say, what would it be like that first day when it's published and people have it in their hands and somebody asks me to sign it. Did you have kind of that surreal moment? Like I wrote a book. I'm so proud of me. <laughs>
0: I know. And I actually had talked to some people too that had already had books and had gone through this. And, um, you know, Steve Brown, our friend, Charlene Lobby, you know, and people like that. And it said like, well, what do you do? And, you know, and there's a combination. Some people just like just sign their name, open the jacket cover and boom, just sign the name. Some would personalize it. Um, and so I tended to do more of that. I kind of like went back and forth. It depended on, like how long the line was at the time or how, you know, the person and what they were saying and all that. So, um, but yeah, it's surreal.
1: (laughs) It's I remember, you know, it's like you create memories, you're already creating memories when people interact with you, but, um, I don't usually get books signed. I'm not a get a picture with a celebrity, get a book signed kind of person. But um, Chris Brogan spoke at a conference. I spoke at the same conference a few years ago. So that was that was a pretty big moment for me. Yeah. But this was when he had, I think, his first book, Trust Agents, uh, was out. And so he had the book signing table afterwards and it gave everyone at the conference a copy of the book. So I you know, was a big Chris Brogan fan and stood in line. And I was really, I've never forgotten and was really impressed. He would physically get up from behind the table, walk around, ask you what your name was. Um, And then, of course, if you wanted a picture, you could get a picture. And then he would personalize what he wrote in the, you know, not like, thanks for the time together, but it was, you know, Jennifer, thanks for coming to the conference or something like that. I still have that book, you know, and I remember that moment. And I think as an author, um, it's hard, especially when I know you probably had a long line at some point to get people to sign your book. But that's a moment for some people that really endears them to you. So that's my advice as a person who's never written a book for you as a person who has.
0: <laughs> well, I really encourage people that I that did come, you know, because I tried to personalize, but I also re- really try to get, encourage them to reach out and connect with me because, you know, at that point, like if you have a question, like send it to me an email by LinkedIn, whatever, like, I will, I will, I will respond. Like, you know, like, I'll, you know, I'll help you as much as I can. Because again, we're all part of the same community. I just happen to be the lucky one to, to finish a book. And you know, now you're sitting here buying it. So
1: yeah. So here we are these today, you are the president of a very successful recruiting firm and have a lot of people that uh, work with you and a lot of clients that depend on you. You are a very prolific, right? Every business day blogger. Uh, still write on Fistful of Talent periodically, maybe not in the Friday slot anymore. You um, are speaking all over the world these days, and I'm sure that will only increase now that you have a a well-received book, and you're a published author. Is there anything left for you to do in your career, Tim? You're still a young guy.
0: I know. What's
1: What's on the list that you haven't checked off yet?
0: (laughs) No, you know, like I said, I think I mentioned, like I'm never satisfied. Um, I, you know, I, I want the, you know, my business um, that I run to to double in size. I want, like, I just I'm not satisfied. Like I already, in fact, I was on the phone today with somebody about book number three. Like I haven't even started book two yet. Oh wow! But I, I already know what book, <laughs> but I already know what book two is, and I've decided what book three is. So, like, I'm already there. You know, from that standpoint of just never being satisfied and like, I don't think I'll ever be retired. I mean, it's just not my mentality. My wife teases me that we go on vacation and she, I go, I just want to sit on the beach. And she's like, that lasts like five minutes. And then you're like antsy and you can't, you have to move around and and do something. So, but that's so yeah. all, so you sure just needed
1: books. five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> so more books, more speaking, more recruiting, more, more writing. Success. There we go. One more. more, more, more. I usually ask people what? who, what's the best advice you've been given from someone, but I, I want to know what's the best advice that your mother ever gave to you?
0: Um, pick up the phone.
1: <laughs> a woman yeah. uh, very few words.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was pretty easy, right? Uh, you know, keep calling. Um, and it was drilled into us as early recruiters. And it's a hard thing I try to, do, um, get, to get through my own team because they always think that, they, that it's, times have changed and you don't get it. And I'm like, well, no, it, they really haven't. But I would go into her office and say, Hey, I called these candidates, you know? Um, so I just don't have any more candidates. I've called them all. And she literally would look at me and say, go call them again. Hmm. I like, no, I just called them. No, call them again. Like that was the job because she knew the second time I called them and they were like, well, Tim, we just talked like two hours ago. And I'd be like, I know, but like I I can't find anybody else. You have to give me a referral. You have to like you just you were you figured out what to talk about and how to get something more and then God dang it if she wasn't right, like you would come back and you'd have something new. You'd have another resume of somebody else that you didn't have before and and so it was always just pick up the phone. I will tell you that one of my HR mentors told me one time that he would say culture always wins. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, we were and at the time I was working in a retail, um, shop co stores in, in Palmeida, and we had like all these retail locations and we would, you would always have like a team or a location or something that was broken. Right. Mm-hmm. And so always, the always, the, the, common misbelief is that you just go in and you change the leader. Well, that leader's awful. Get that leader out of there, put a new leader in. And he says, every time that that happens, what happens? The, the location stays broken. It doesn't get fixed. And it was this way at Applebee's as well. And he said, that's because the culture is already ingrained in that location, right? It's not about the leader. It's about the full culture, which the leader is only part of. So if you bring a new leader in, that culture will always win. That will always beat out that one leader. The only way that you're going to win is if you cut everything out at one time and bring it in, or if there's a systematic approach to changing that culture first with whatever leader you have in place. Mm-hmm. And I always remember that because it happens so often um when I'm going into a place and they the people they just want to change the people. Just change the people. And I'm like, no no no. You need to change your culture. And then either the people will have to change, but first you change that. So That's some
1: great wisdom there. Well, let's wrap this up then with you have three boys they are very successful and you're a very involved husband and father. I love that about you. What's the best advice that you either have given or plan to give to your sons since they're not in recruiting? So pick up the phone might not work for them.
0: So in my book, like I did a prologue, um, like is like an epilogue, right? Prologue is the first. The epilogue is the ending. Um, and I actually put that advice in there to them. So if you buy the book, you can get, no, I'm just kidding. Good plug. To you. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, I was, where was I, I was doing something where I kept saying the talent fix and the talent fix. And they're like, look, look, we'll get to it. We'll plug it. Don't worry about it. <laughs> um, I tell, I tell my kids to be more like my wife and less like me. Um, I, you know, because I, I do think, you know, that there's a part of that where don't try to be, your dad. Don't try to be this micro celebrity who's online and who's blogging and speaking, be yourself, be whoever it is that you are. And I have three boys that are completely different in personality. Um, and, and I think that's, it's critical that they know that that it's okay that they can go out and, and actually be themselves. And, and again, I'm, I'm always envious of my wife because she probably has all the strengths that are my weaknesses and that's probably why we work together so well. And so I, you know, I, want, I would tell them to be more like her because I think I'm so envious of her strengths. Um, and so that's the advice I give them.
1: Well, that's great advice. And I will buy your book because friends don't let friends ask for free books. So I want to support you and your efforts. And again, we'll link to it in the show notes as well. Thank you so much. It's always wonderful to chat with you. You make me smile, Tim. Thank
0: you. You make me smile as well.
1: All right. Have a great day. One of the best things about the journey of making an impact in the world is the people that you meet along the way and seeing how they're creating impact. My friend, Laurie Rudiman, is one of those people. She's a writer, speaker, and entrepreneur who is setting out to fix work. In her podcast called Let's Fix Work, she's tackling why work is often so miserable for many people and what we can all do to fix it. Here's some of what she's talking about. During the past 10 years, I've developed a huge network of friends and colleagues. These are people who are passionate about fixing work. They have big ideas. They're authors, speakers, consultants, and even HR ladies who want to help workers find purpose and meaning. So I'm starting a podcast to interview my friends who want to fix work. I love the Let's Fix Work podcast, and I think you will too. Check it out. And subscribe over at letsfixwork.com.
0: If you want to raise your game at work, you've got to raise your impact. Find out Jennifer's 10 best strategies to make more of an impact at work at jennifermcclure.net slash 10 ways. That's jennifermcclure.net slash 10 ways.